0: Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today's guest is Debbie Bing. We're going to learn a little bit more about the work CIFAR does, but Debbie's work also extends to being a a speaker, a writer, and in fact, an award-winning writer. In that 2008, she won the Bridger Award for a book, a paper called Crowding Out the Space, The Weakness of a Strong Leader. Debbie is skilled at helping clients make decisions and implement change in highly politicized, emotionally charged environments. And I'm really looking forward to hearing from her about what work she does and how she does that magic. So for our guests who do not know, welcome Debbie Bing. And what is the meaning and what does CFAR, C-F-A-R stand for?
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here talking with you about one of my uh, favorite topics to talk about. So, CIFAR stands for the Center for Applied Research, uh, which speaks to our origins as a company. So, CIFAR was originally a research center inside the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, started in the 70s when two centers came together, one that thought about sort of traditional business analytics and finance and strategy, and the other that thought about all of the things having to do with the human dimension of organizations and organizational systems. They merged, began consulting uh, to all sorts of organizations, including, importantly, family businesses and family enterprises uh, at the intersection of hard and soft. And in the late 80s, we spun out to be a private company, um, still with good ties to the university. And the work that we do is consulting and advising family enterprises on all sorts of issues where there are questions about shared economics and the complicated dynamics between people. And um, we think about our work as applied research. So we draw on ideas, although we're working every day with families, with leaders on the you know, very real live issues that they are grappling with.
0: I did not know the history of CIFAR that it goes back that far. I did not know that it was once yeah. yeah. affiliated with Wharton. So as a um, beneficiary, frankly, of a family business that did not survive more mm-hmm. than a couple of generations, Um, I am particularly interested in how do founders, whether they're related or not, pass down to their children in ways that are effective for both the business and the family? I know that's a big question, but what are your first thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, it's a question with a lot of layers and, um, you know, it sounds like you've got experience yourself and when it doesn't work out. So I think just to just to take a broad view first, that one of the first questions that's important for founders and families to be asking and thinking about when they're thinking about continuity is what are their goals? So what are they trying to achieve through passing on a business if in fact that's what the goal is? Are they interested in continuity of a business? Are they committed to creating opportunities for a next generation? Um, Do they do lots of things together? So do they have a business? Do they also do philanthropy together? There's lots of ways to bring a next generation into the mix, into the collective work of a family. So sort of starting at the highest level, what is it that's guiding the, the, the wish to have continuity and from that, inquiry and dialogue with each other, you start to get a lot of guidance about the kinds of things that need to be explored in order to have that transition be successful. Um, So, for example, there are um, many families will take the path of determining explicitly, what are the rules of the road for new generations entering the business? Are there requirements? Do they need to go work somewhere else first? Do they uh, need to have certain kinds of academic or experiential requirements that would qualify them? Um, So even just a discussion about what's gonna help them be successful. How do they build credibility with business leaders who may not be family members or have been around a long time and have certain views? so i think a long way of saying that the explicit conversation between generations about what are we trying to achieve and how do we set this up in a way that will help us move towards that goal is really a very important starting point mm-hmm.
0: i would imagine and i would also imagine that there are family businesses even large successful ones that aren't giving this the thought it's due what happens after? the organization is so created i would imagine that sometimes founders are so busy in the creation that they don't spend the time looking and thinking about what happens to the next gen is that true or am i making that up
1: i think that's often true i think what you're alluding to is something that we see a lot which is that um, family businesses and families can live in the world of untested assumptions so that there may be ideas that aren't discussed together about for sure my kids are going to enter this business or for sure they're not or expectations that are created almost implicitly on one side or the other. I think the other thing about founders, I have tremendous admiration for founders. You know, they, they go through a stage where often it's putting everything on the line and this visceral experience of risk to have this idea take root and see a business be successful. And I was talking with a, a family just last week, for example, where a founder who has many children in the business now, qualified, terrific, contributing children, but still feeling like I don't know how to have them experience the risk that I felt. Because I, in his view, that was critical to the success, you know, sort of having to mortgage your house or take a big risk with an investor or, you know, those early decisions. So when a business is more mature, you've got a next generation that enters when um, it's been successful and the dynamics are different. How, how can a founder and a next generation share a point of view about what's, what's risk look like for them for, for their own investment in their development?
0: I would imagine, you know, that given that founders like risk and that, you know, in the scenario you're describing, that risk in and of itself was valuable to life for them, not just starting a business. And there are lots of next gen people who do not have that same temperament. And I can imagine the challenges that would occur between a founder with a heavy sense of risk and a next gen who is very different in that regard.
1: Uh, yeah, and I think the, the we see that a lot and there's also sort of an opportunity because next generations in business, often what's happened is that the, the world has changed, the business has evolved and the leadership requirements for the next stage are changing. So if a business was carried through to a certain stage of success by a founder, who didn't have to make things explicit. And there's no distinction between family and business and all of those things, just you know, making decisions as you need to. And now they're dealing with a more sophisticated, often bigger organization or their customer base has changed. So the, the sort of art here is to look outside of, at what does the business now require and where are their gifts that are different, skill sets that are different in that next generation that actually are are critical and useful to, to take that next step. Um, and, you know, it sounds easy. And I think we know that being shoulder to shoulder in those kinds of conversations and navigating, is this a difference in value or is this just a difference of view of strategy um, is, is easier said than done. But when it's done right, I think you can see, there's a way in which family businesses live both in the past the present and the future, and when cross-generational discussions can be thinking about what was so important um, that guided you know, the, the values and commitments that brought us to this stage of success. How are those stretched and tested as we look ahead and what may be needed next, and how can we um, really honor and make use of both? That's, that's the hope of cross-generational work, that it's actually generative and accessing multiple views that those are the kinds of things that lead to continuity over many generations.
0: That makes complete sense to me. It's a really optimistic and hopeful view, actually. Um, Tell me. I think you can't do this
1: work if you're not an optimist. (laughs) I
0: I'm a total (laughs) optimist. So I sit here and I'm looking going, ah, kindred spirit here. But I do see change in structure. Tell me in speaking of change, Tell me, are there best practices or are there cautionary tales about bringing somebody outside the original family um, into a constellation of a family business? Are there good practices to make sure that that can be an effective entrance?
1: Um, so I th- there's a couple ways to think about your question. So we have seen lots of businesses as they grow and develop who come to rely on non-family leaders as an important part of the mix of what adds to the talent base and the success over time. And um, in that case, you know, family members need to think about how do you create real leadership and partnership? um, And as non-family members look at the future, how do they feel equally invested in the success? And so there's, there's the best practices there I think is, go for the talent that your business needs, um, build leadership teams with family and non-family, um, you know, if, if that's what will make your business successful. And again, you'll, you'll hear me say it again and again, but the idea of explicit conversations and um, helping to be clear about the values and mission that drive a business and inviting people to give those life and be part of that. I think another dimension of your question, you also may be asking about spouses and in-laws who often may come into a business in a family situation. And on that one, I'd say each family is different in its choices and its history about how uh, spouses and, and the term of art in the field is often married-ins. Um, used to be in-laws, then outlaws. <laughs> now often people will call call them married-ins. Um, and I, I think, when you're talking about, uh, I I heard um, a speaker who said the best thing I've ever heard about the inclusion of spouses. And they said, for those families that feel resistant to the inclusion of spouses in some way in the work of the family, think about it as your best shot at diversifying beyond your gene pool. <laughs> right? So this right. is the opportunity that um you've got access to new perspectives and new backgrounds and new talents and they're in the family um and that said there are lots of ways for spouses to be involved whether it's in roles and operating companies or part of family governance or simply part of family meetings and i think the important thing is to remember they are part of the system they will influence the next next generation as their parents uh the the business or the collective work of the family will influence their lives a lot so again an opportunity to be deliberate to think about the opportunity there that they you know the skills that they bring to any aspect of the family's collective work and to be clear about the again the rules of the road what do what do we require what do we ask um just one small anecdote about spouses i worked with a family This was now into the fourth generation, so fairly successful at this point at the stage where um, a spouse said, you know, the first thing I learned about the family business was when a prenup agreement was kind of being pushed across the table at me. (laughs) Um, And in that case, it highlighted the importance of kind of onboarding you're married in, into the family business and the history and the legacy, and focusing also on the positive things, the, the contributions to the community or whatever that has looked like, a, a source of pride, as well as the mechanics of it.
0: I bet that's not an uncommon tale that the prenup precedes the information. <laughs>
1: um,
0: but on the other side of that, how soon is too soon? When do you start bringing in, a potential in law into the information um, of a pretty sensitive nature. What do you suggest?
1: I, I mean, I I think it's it's very different depending on the family and the context, and I I honestly have seen it work in many ways. So I um, I think the important thing to remember are there are layers of information and involvement that are available. So I've seen some families have age requirements or length of relationship requirements um, at a certain stage where somebody's invited to a family meeting. And there's also a way to engage people in the story of a company and the history of the family or the philanthropy that they do together without turning over all the financials. So rather than seeing this as a binary, someone's in or someone's out, um, to be thoughtful about including them in the exciting aspects and, you know, careful and judicious as you would be with anyone you brought into your family business, family or not, about how they enter. Um, and I, I, I think this is a case where there is no one size fits all. And the important thing is not to just live in the world of assumptions, but to be really talking with each other and, and making that clear. And this is a source of conflict sometimes for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. hmm Let's talk about conflict. because. Your work and my work wouldn't exist if there wasn't conflict on some level. If everybody worked through things smoothly and you know were able to communicate in ways that were loving and clear, we wouldn't be in 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 our work in many, many ways. So let's talk about conflict. How do you see conflict? I know it takes a myriad of forms, But what are the common themes of conflict between generations that you're seeing?
1: One thing I should mention is that my my work before um, being in the world of advising family businesses was uh, um, an ethnic conflict. So lived and worked in the Middle East, worked on sort of post um, wow. old world conflicts in Eastern Europe. So I come by it honestly <laughs> in that I have sort of a head for conflict. And one of the th- I point that out because one of the things that I learned through that work, which you know I'll often tell families, Um, you know, if your life feels like the Middle East, I've got some experience, maybe that can help. Although, you you know, obviously lots of conflict persists there. Uh, That the idea is that there's so many layers underneath what presents as a conflict. And one of the ways that we like to think about it is um, it's an opportunity to understand a source of difference. And is there a way to explore what the conflict is representing Um, and in that, Find something that has useful information about decision making, future choices. So, for example, um, I you. think it's less it's less common that there's um, you know one problematic player and and that's the whole of it. But I, I we'll often see conflict between generations about strategy, and it can show up as. Um, you know, this next generation doesn't understand our values because they want to take the company in a direction that's counter to everything we believe in. Right. That might be where it starts. So we worked with a family that was, um, highly involved in the entertainment industry. And one of the key tenants was a certain stance about how you treat those that customers as family and, um, The early generation felt they had differentiated their customer service based on this value. Uh, You know, you would be like our family members and we will treat you like family. And that had a whole set of practices attached to it. Fast forward, the industry they're in becomes much more complex. There's complicated fee structures and choices about the economics of the business. Customer preferences have changed. And the next generation in this case was advocating the addition of a service, reaching to a different age demographic, adding a certain fee that was common across much of the industry at that point. And it was showing up as you are departing from this core value because this seems overly commercial and it seems mercenary and it seems not like treating our customers like family. So that that looks like a conflict of values. Um, Sticking with the conversation, and looking at what their goals were for growth of the business and exploring what some of the peers have done. The, the conversation began, how do we adapt our business practices and still live this value? Although it may, may look differently applied in a different context. So one version of conflict is just um, you know the pains people feel around innovation and change that the world is demanding and that can show up as a real locking of heads about, are we departing from our past? Are we um, giving up something that's important?
0: That's a great example. I, I would not use, I like to treat my clients as family because I know way too much about it. <laughs> family, (laughs) treasured honorable guests, whole kinds of things, but not necessarily family. It's more complicated. Speaking of family, let's talk about women. And you've been at this a number of years now and you understand the conflict between people bringing in generations. Women are participating in MBA programs in droves, 38, 40, or something like that. Percentage of MBA programs are now women. Are you noticing a like percentage entering into family businesses?
1: Well, I think that the um, we are seeing lots of women enter family businesses. And in addition to, you know, maybe they're coming with the more traditionally identified business degrees more, at, also, there's been a real opening of in recognition, I think among many businesses about a need for a wider set of skills, backgrounds, uh, people who bring different perspectives. And that's also been another way that uh, we've seen an increase of entry of next generation of all kinds and certainly women. Um, and w- you know, just to, we saw during you know, the height of the pandemic, uh, for example, that businesses, sometimes multi-multi-generational businesses, suddenly rug pulled out from underneath them, needed to draw on a whole different set of skills on, around marketing and positioning and creating glue and thinking about their business differently. So one of the, one of the benefits or sort of the silver lining of a very, very trying time for many family businesses is there were suddenly many different kinds of people from across the family who didn't necessarily see their place in the way that the business had taken shape. There was an invitation and a need for them to bring new perspectives, new voices, um, including women.
0: I love that. Do you advocate a specific invitation in that way? Written out, here's where we are as a business. Here's where we want to go. We are inviting all thinkers. Have you ever sort of sent out that missive in some shape, way, or form?
1: I love that idea. <laughs> I wish I could say that that um, I I've seen that in some way. So um, you may be adding an interesting idea to the to our practice. I think the place that that happens, and sometimes explicitly, and sometimes less so, is through family meetings. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Um, Another thing, interestingly, with the pandemic is that these many families would hold family meetings and they were place-based and you needed to show up. And they found both they could be in dialogue with each other more often and in a more inclusive way as it was happening asynchronously, because that's what the world was dictating. So um, when families get together and talk about what's happening in the business and talk about all the things that families are doing together, and um, it's just an opening. And sometimes um, it would be great to think that there's always a missive and an explicit invitation. But what I would say to next gens, uh, you know, women and men, is look for the opening. It's it's not always you know served up to you, but you come with skills and perspectives, and you have a connection. So what are the ways that the things that you bring might offer something that even those leading the business day to day don't necessarily see? Um And when families are getting together and talking with each other, and the message is inclusivity, even if it doesn't mean everyone will go work in the business, more of those light bulbs start to go off and the relationships are built that pave the way.
0: That's beautiful. Thank you. And yeah. thank you all of you for listening today to Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. My guest today, Debbie Bing, the founder and principal of CIFAR. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please like us on your platform of choice. And otherwise, we will be seen talking to you next week. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.